turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just to ask you a question, what, what do you really believe about the Bible? I've uh, heard some people with, say with great amount of conviction, they believe that the Bible is like the Word of God and that it is absolutely true, there's no errors, uh, it is believed, it tells us what we're to know about God and how to have a relationship with Him. And then, of course, you've got some folks that say, well, you know, it's the Word of God, but they don't, it doesn't really have a major role in their lives. I mean, it, they rarely look at it, they don't know much about it, but they would tell you that it's the Word of God. And then, of course, we've got uh, a lot of folks that say, well, it's an inspirational book, um, it's religious literature, uh, it's, it's a book that you can learn a lot from. It's certainly uh, highly revered like a lot of people um, around the world and has been for maybe thousands of years. But uh, it's, not, it's not like actually from God. It's unreliable in terms of like saying that this is truly from God. It's like without error. You can't say that. So where are you? What, what do you really believe about the Bible? Uh, how do you even know that the Bible is the Word of God? If you, if you say, like, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, isn't that the right answer? Let me ask you, how do you know that? I mean, honestly, how do you really know that? Could you defend that position? And if you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then how does it actually transform your life? You know, some of, these are some of the most absolutely important questions that you could ever ask and you must answer. In fact, your life probably reveals what you really think about this book. Let me just tell you that in one verse, as we're making our way through the book of First Thessalonians, we have come to chapter 2, verse 13. In one verse, the Apostle Paul tells us how the Word of God really, truly can transform our way of life. Take a look at it. If you've read this book, 1 Thessalonians, and we're encouraging you to do that, you might have already like highlighted this book, verse, this verse, uh, underline it, put a mark by it, because it is so central. Look what he says. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. If the Word of God is going to transform your way of life, you've got to receive it with clarity. Notice what they did. He said, for this reason. Okay, for the, what reason is that? Well, verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of him who calls you into his kingdom. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God. You see, they actually received it. The idea of receiving means to take to oneself, to actually have fellowship with. And when it says about that you heard it, you, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you also heard from us, that has the idea of not just listening, but that you actually process what you're hearing. It's not like the Bible is being read or truth is being spoken, but you're totally tuned out. You kind of hear some syllables, but that you're actually processing and understanding he says, you receive the word of God. So what is it that they're receiving? When he talks about the word of God, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, the gospel, and the apostles' teaching that was given authoritatively as God was having them presented. And so I want to ask you, just a quick time out, how do you receive 
the Word of God. I mean, like, how do you get it in, a, in like a personal, just in your own private setting? Let me just give you a few pointers on how you can do it. First of all, you want to come with the heart and the attitude that I really want to enjoy the Bible. And you, you come to understand the, the normal, natural meaning of what you're reading. You don't, like, try to make up some sort of fanciful message or anything like that. You just take it in context. You read it and look for the natural, normal meaning. And you want to be thinking about what you're reading, okay? You want to process. You want to think about, like, okay, what does this mean? Why is this recorded? How does this apply to my life? And you want to be processing, we might use the word, like, meditating upon Scripture, Just like um, digestion is essential for you to get all of the nutrients out of the food, well, so it is with the Bible. You've got to actually meditate upon it. You've got to think about it. You've got to kind of chew on it. And then, you know, you can learn a lot. Like, I can tell you that there's a lot of difficult truths in the Scriptures. But we actually have scholars who have given their lives to study, and like, probably one of the very best investments you could ever make in your spiritual development and understanding of the Bible would be to buy a study Bible. I think the best study Bible on the market is the MacArthur Study Bible, but there's the ESV Study Bible, Nelson Study Bible. There's an app called the Faith Life app. It's free, and it's got a wealth of information. You can put it on your phone. I use it on a regular basis, and it just gives you understanding and insight as to what the text is saying. And then, of course, we've got commentaries. But you've got to come to a place where you're actually bringing the Word of God into your regular spiritual diet, okay? And so Jesus said basically the same thing. Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need bread to live, right? You need spiritual food for your soul. What is that? According to Jesus, it's the word of God. Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So if you if you want to grow, you've got to eat. I mean, you know that. If you have kids, you know that the doctors want to see the baby a lot early on, right? And they bring him in for little checkups, and they're weighing them, and they're measuring them. And, you know, you get to that 15-month checkup, and... Uh, I remember, like, Trina giving me, like, the reports, like, okay, our kid, she weighs now this much, you know, and she's grown this much. And you can do some simple calculations. And, like, by the age of 25, I mean, she should be weighing about 400-plus pounds and be about 16 feet, 8 inches tall. You know what I'm saying? Because at this present rate of growth, I mean, whoa, we got a giant on our hands if this keeps going, right? What's a big part of the, the baby's plan for growth? Eating. All the time, right? They are always bringing food in their system because it's required in order to grow. Now, the same could be said about our spiritual lives. But what if you don't feel like reading the Bible? I've been there. You've been there? Okay. Is it legalism to say, well, I just got to do it? We, we kind of think, well, I don't want to be a legalist, and I don't want you to be a legalist. But is it legalism to actually read the scriptures if you don't feel like it? No. It's obedience and intelligence. That's what it is. You know, like when people have like a real bad sickness, um, a disease, and they don't feel like eating, we get really concerned because we know that they need nourishment to live, right? Same is true. You need nourishment for your souls. And so figure out 
something that works for you. And it may change from day to day. It certainly changes from person to person. But find a way to incorporate Scripture in your life. Maybe it's just five or ten minutes. You're reading a verse, reading a passage, reading a book. You can have extended time, but find a way to get the Word of God in your life. Maybe you read a book over and over. Maybe you read a psalm a day. But find a way to incorporate Scripture into your life because, friends, that's what spiritual life's food is, the Word of God. And I'll also just want to, while we're talking about it, like how do you actually receive the Word of God in a public setting? If you're a Christian that has really any understanding of the Lordship of Christ— you understand that you have actually been brought into his body where Christ is the head and you're the body and you're actually called to be a part of a local body where you're actively involved, not passively, but you're actively involved. You come to worship, you gather with the saints. You're a part of the body of Christ. That means that you are probably going to hear thousands of messages. That is a significant investment of your time. How are you going to go about that to make the most out of that? Well, I'll just tell you how to do that, how to make the most of a message. First of all, you want to be personally ready. You want to come with the attitude and the mindset that, God, I want to, I want to learn from you. I want you to shape my convictions. I want to have better understanding. I want, I want my behavior to be guided by you. I want to become Christ-like. Lord, you've got to do the work, but I want to lo- know and learn. And we actually, at Fellowship Bible Church, we make this so easy. We pretty much go book by book through the Bible, and we actually take the next passage, okay? All you have to do is, like, what are we going to be covering? Likely, it's the very next verse or verses, right? Every once in a while, we throw you a curveball and do something different, but we, we basically go through the books of the Bible. We have something called the Fellowship Connection. comes out every week, tells you about all the things that are going on in the church. If you're not getting that, you need to fill out the connection card and say, I need to be on the Fellowship Connection, and give us your email address, because we actually tell you the message that's coming on Sunday. We give you the title, we give you the verses, and you could actually read it before. It's kind of like this. What you put into something is what you're going to get out of it. And that's going to be so true about all the messages that you're hearing. Some people take notes. That's how, when I'm listening, I take notes because I want to be interacting and I want to be remembering. I'm not as sharp as all of you, and I, I need to write down some things. But some people just actively, intently listen, and they're processing. But but you want to be engaged. You want to be personally ready. You know, another thing is you want to be physically ready. People do not listen well if they are hungry and or tired, especially males, okay? I mean, I'm just telling you, okay? Uh, ladies, this is for your understanding, but if you want to understand, like, what in the world is going on? If you're hungry or tired and you're male, you just have this, it's almost like it's our excuse for bad behavior and not paying attention and all those sort of things. It's sinful, it's wrong, but I'm telling you, it's reality. People don't do well when they're hungry and tired, so have some nourishment before you eat. Come. And we know that some of you are very busy. Some of you are driving from other counties 40 miles away to come and be a part of Fellowship Bible Church. So we provide you, like, Panera products right out there and high-octane coffee, which will keep you awake. Okay, so but you want to be physically ready to go. And then, finally, you want to be prayerfully ready. Ask God, God... I want you to shape my understanding. I want you to develop my convictions. I want you to develop and increase my faith. Would you, would you guide my behavior through your word so that I'll be everything you intended? And so that's what you want to do. And not only do you want to communicate, uh, you want to be praying for the, the, what you're going to be hearing, but you want to pray for the one who is actually speaking. Okay? Ask God to give them the time to dive deep in the text, to speak the truth, the truth from the word. 
And I would not put myself under any teaching that wasn't directly related to this word, because this is God's word. So how do you receive it? You see, if the word of God is going to transform your way of life, you have to receive it with clarity. Now, let me give you a second. You have to recognize the Bible's authority if the word of God is going to transform your way of life. And notice what he says in verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you, listen to this, accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Not as the word of men, not as some sort of outgrowth of personal philosophical meanderings. This isn't Paul or the the apostles' best thoughts, or the, the prophets have some ideas about God that they want to share. But it's actually, he says, it is the word of God. The word includes the gospel, the Old Testament scriptures, as well as the New Testament that was given through the apostles. And so he says, you recognize its authority. It's not a particular viewpoint. It isn't some sort of uh, one of the endless variety of human theories about God and religion, but that it's actually from God. Like 2 Timothy Timothy 3.16. Remember how it begins? All scripture is... Inspired, there we go, inspired by God. It's from God. It's a revelation of his truth. So let me give you just a description of the word of God. And we've covered this before in detail, but just as a reminder, it's inspired. Remember what he said? All scripture is inspired. That literally means from the breath of God. It speaks of the spirit-directed, air-free production of, of the original documents. It is inspired. It's given by God. And how did he do it? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Right before that, he said there's only one interpretation. God has an intended meaning. But you need to know that it's men moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. So this, this Bible is not a collection of myths, stories, merely human ideas about God. It is what God intended to reveal, and he used the personality, the historical, cultural context of the people, their intelligence, their talents, their language, their style. It's all reflected, but he used that to actually write down exactly what he intended. So we believe it's inspired. We believe it's inerrant. That means that the Bible is truthful. It is completely accurate. It's error-free in the original documents when it was written down. We also believe that it's infallible, which means that it's completely trustworthy. It's incapable of failing. It is dependable and reliable. And let me just give you a fourth description. We believe that it is authoritative. It's to believe, be believed, because God gave it. It's why we obey it. It's authoritative in terms of God's revelation of truth, Disclosure of himself, instruction for life, guide for faith. It's the accurate record of events as God recorded it. That's how it happened. All right. You're like, wait a second. Those are huge claims. How in the world do you know with absolute certainty that this book we call the Bible is truly God's word? I mean, can you defend that? I mean, are we just like, well, we're just kind of taking about faith. Or is there a real strong basis for our faith and our belief? Let me just give you support for the claim that the Bible is the Word of God. Let me, first of all, 
By the way, you, you might want to take a few notes because our culture will challenge this. You need to have an answer. You need to know. It'll be reflected on how you live. Let me give you a first reason why I believe that the Bible for certain is the word of God. And that is the internal consistency. This is a fascinating book. You know, it's written by over 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and some, some parts in Aramaic. People of every kind of stripe. I mean, you got kings, super wise folks, and you got herdsmen, farmers, fishermen. You, got, you have folks that have everything, and you have folks that have nothing. You have people living in awesome circumstances, and you got people living in captivity, and, and just it's terrible. And yet... There is an outstanding unity to this book. 1,500 years. Absolute unity, not a contradiction. I mean, it's fascinating. That overall theme is the sovereign God's establishment and working in the world and the redemption of his people through the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the overarching theme of the Bible, and you see it being played out. When you look at that kind of internal consistency and not seeing contradictions, I tell you, that is proof right there that this is not just a mere book. This is God's book. Let me give you another. Fulfilled prophecy. Biblical prophecy is where God declares events of the future way beyond, like, human wisdom or anticipation. I mean, over astronomical odds, this is what God does. He actually states what is going to happen in the future. And they make for undeniable arguments that this is a book from God. So, for instance, prophecy can be broken down into two sections. you got general prophecy. General prophecy has the idea of, of when God speaks of, like, the rise and fall or certain activities of people or even nations or the overthrow of certain cities or empires or the desolation and restoration of Jerusalem, okay? So this is general prophecies, okay? So, like, let me give you some examples you're probably pretty familiar with. Like, Joseph, uh, remember, he interprets Pharaoh's dream, remember? And he says, you know that, what's going to happen is there are going to be seven years where things are going to be great, man. You're going to have bumper crops. And that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. You might want to save some. Or what's what took place, that's exactly what happened. But yet God revealed this is going to happen in the future. Let me give you another one. And this one, if you were an, a major skeptic about the Bible and its authority, Daniel chapter 2 ought to bring about life change. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. He interprets his dream, and God actually out, just lays out all of the panorama of Gentile history, starting with Babylon. Daniel is actually a captive in Babylon. He's in the court, and he systematically lays it out. There'll be the Babylonian kingdom. That's going to be followed by the Medo-Persian kingdom, then Greece, then Rome, and then finally the Messianic kingdom. Well, that's all before that all took place. If you've taken World History 101, you're like, whoa, that's exactly what happened. How did he know that? Because God revealed it. That's general prophecy. I tell you what, this is not a book written by mere mortals. Let me give you another. There's general prophecy, but there's also what we call messianic prophecies. These are prophecies, predictions, that are speaking of this coming one. The word Messiah means anointed one. This one who would be God, who bears the penalty for sin, 
and, and it speaks of his coming, and so we won't be able to miss when he does arrive. These are messianic prophecies. So by one count, there are over 333 specific prophecies made about this coming Messiah. And in Jesus' first coming, he fulfilled over a hundred of them, and he made this promise and guarantee, I'm coming back. And all you have to do is read the book of Revelation, seeing when he comes back, and as the fulfillment of all these future messianic kingdom prophecies of a literal kingdom on the earth with a literal eternal king. So let me just kind of give you some of these prophecies. I mean, it, it kind of helps us because it keeps talking about the Messiah will be born. First of all, the Messiah will be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. Okay? And then we find in Genesis 12 that why the Messiah is going to come through the line of Abraham. And then it gets narrowed down because there's 12 tribes of Israel that specifically Messiah will come through the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.10. And then to narrow it down even more, why he's going to be an eternal king. He will be a son of David. He's going to come from David's line. And then he narrows it down to a small little sheep herding village called Bethlehem, Right? You better know that because Christmas is around the corner. It's the old little town of Bethlehem. And 700 years prior to the event, God says, my Messiah is going to come from that small little shepherd village, Bethlehem. Then to really narrow it down, God makes it clear, so you will not miss him, that this Messiah will be born of a virgin. Woo. Okay, how many people do you know in that category? Huh, I know one. See that in Isaiah 7.14. And then you see from like Isaiah 53 that he's going to suffer and die for our sins. That he's going to come, according to Daniel 9, 24 through 26, at about A.D. 33, he will make his entrance into Jerusalem. And then he's going to rise from the dead. Psalm like 16, 10 through 11, and Psalm 2, 7 and 8, and Isaiah 53, 10. That he, he is alive. He, he's resurrected. All of this is to point that there is one. So you don't miss it. The prophetic doorway is so narrow, and there are so many prophecies that when you find the one who is accomplishing these things, you should believe in him. It is a way for God saying, this is my son. And when we see this, we have just overwhelming proof that the Bible is indeed the word of God. Peter Stoner, uh, he's a scientist in the area of mathematical probabilities, in his book, Science Speaks, said that if we were just to take eight of the Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled, the probability of it coming to pass is 1 to 10 and the 17th power. That is so many zeros, we couldn't put it on the PowerPoint. But let me assure you, that is, that is like astronomical odds, he said, for one individual to fulfill eight prophecies. Not to mention that Jesus filled over 100 of them on his first coming with the promise of his return. To help us understand, he says, you know, we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, and what we would do is if we were to lay them over the face of Texas, which is a big state and a great state, right? It would be two feet deep of silver dollars. Can you imagine? And one to the 10 to the 17th power is to take one of the silver dollars and mark it really good and shuffle it throughout the entire state, and you go find your smartest and your brightest, likely one of you sitting right here today, and you find them, you blindfold them, and you have them select the marked silver dollar. How many of you are thinking like, no problem, they got it. Is that going to happen? 
Well, it would be pretty rare. It would be like 1 to the 10 to the 17th power for that to happen. That's for eight prophecies fulfilled in one man. And when you see Jesus, he fulfills over 100 in his first coming. When I was investigating Christianity and before I placed my faith in Christ, when prophecies were shown me from the Old Testament, like, for instance, uh, Micah 5.2, given 700 years before the coming of Christ that he'd be born in Bethlehem, or in Psalm 22, when you can see literally it's spelled out, this crucifixion that he's pierced through, and that execution wasn't even a known form of, of uh, excuse me, crucifixion wasn't even a known form of execution a thousand years before the coming of Christ, and this prophecy was written a thousand years before it was fulfilled, that put me face to face with a supernatural book, the Bible. It reflects an origin way beyond any, anything a person can manipulate and make happen. Let me give you another reason why we absolutely know for certain that the Bible is the Word of God. Look at its effect on human history. The Bible has literally influenced and changed the lives of millions of people, and it continues to do so today. Do you know what the number one best-selling book is every single year? It's the Bible. They don't even put it on the best-selling list because it's just like, well, it's kind of a given, and we don't really want to know that, but more Bibles are produced and sold than any other book every single year. Let me give you another reason why we, we know for certain that this book is God's Word. Look at the clear instruction and information that is given about relationship with God. This book teaches us how you and I can truly have relationship with God, like 2 Timothy 3.15 says, and that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This book tells you where to place your faith and who to place your faith in. It gives you that kind of guidance. Let me give you another. Look at the self-claims of the Bible itself. What does the Bible have to say about itself? Phrases like, thus saith the Lord, if you've got a King James Version, or thus says the Lord, or God spoke, or the Lord testified. In the prophets, you have... Over 1,300 statements like that. In the Old Testament, you have over 3,800 statements that attribute that what is being given is from God. In the New Testament, you have over 40 times the phrase, the Word of God. Like you see it even here in verse 13. All of this is to say, God is saying, this is my book. I'm speaking. I'm powerful enough to have it recorded down. Let me give you just a couple more. Jesus' views regarding the Scripture. I mean, let's think about the one who lived the perfect life, his words, his works, and that he was killed and he rose again. What does Jesus have to say about the Bible? Well, right before he goes to the cross, he actually is praying this. You don't have to guess. John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is is truth. What did Jesus think? Jesus thought the scriptures are God's word. I mean, Jesus referenced like Noah and the flood and Jonah, things that are like skeptics, quote unquote, biblical scholars that really don't believe the Bible is God's word. Like, oh, that's come on now. That's ridiculous. Well, that's putting you at odds with Jesus because Jesus took it as fact. I think I'm going to line up with Jesus on this one. Jesus even said this in John 14, 16, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. 
Jesus said, I'm going to accomplish this. I will bring to your remembrance. I will have my word written down. And he gives his authority to scripture that he believed and used as the word of God. Let, let me finally give you another one. Look at the confirming testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that this is somewhat subjective, and I, I want you to understand that. But there are literally millions of people that will can bear testimony that this book, there's something about it that is convincing and compelling. Uh, we could attribute it to the Spirit of God because we actually understand from the book and our own experience that God's Spirit literally comes into the lives of those who believe in Him. And there is just there's this overwhelming sense that this book is true and from God. That, that has been my experience since I've become a believer. And that is the experience of millions and countless other people. Like Abraham Lincoln said, he called the Bible God's best gift to man. You see, if the Word of God is going to transform our way of life, you've got to receive it with clarity, but you have to recognize its authority. But it can't stop there. Look at Look at verse 13 one more time. He says, you know, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who what? 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 Who believe. You actually trust. You have, you're responding to it with fidelity. You have faith. You believe. You take it as truth. You trust in it, and that's exactly what happened. In the Greek, when it says about performs, it's in the present tense. It means it continually, on an ongoing fashion, keeps doing its, its work in your life. That is the intent of Scripture. It is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You who believe, God always does His work through His Scriptures. And it's the question is, are you going to believe? Will you believe what God has revealed? For the Thessalonians... They did. And their lives were changed. How do you know that? Remember chapter 1, verses 6 and 7? They actually became an example for the entire Roman Empire. I'll give you another reason why we know that they really believed. Paul stated it, but the very next verse, we'll see this next week, is that they were willing to suffer for it. You will not suffer for something you do not believe is true. They were convinced, and God did his work. You know, other books are written for our information. The Bible has given is, is given to us for our transformation. I think you're going to find this. A lot of people have. The more you grow to study and understand this Bible, the more you grow spiritually. They work in tandem. It's hand in hand. I remember one guy had a lot of steam for him. Just he was a significant leader in the church I came from. I'm like, hey, I had lunch with him. I said, hey, so what happened? How did this happen to you? He said, well, when I finally started taking the study of Scripture seriously, I really started to grow. And that's how it works. You must come to a place where you believe. Like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says, listen, all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It comes through the Word. See, that's what happened for the Thessalonians. It wasn't the Bible for them, the scripture, that wasn't just something that they kind of kept on some scrolls on their shelf at home. They didn't keep it in the back of their ox cart and they pull it out every Sunday. Like, hey, we're going to church. Where is that thing? Okay. No. It had an ongoing pattern of involvement and investment in their life. You know, what it comes down to is this. If the Bible isn't God's word, you're pretty much wasting your time. 
especially in a church like this, you ought to just go and do whatever you want and believe whatever you want. If this isn't the book from God, you should just do whatever you feel like doing. And a lot of folks do just that. On the other hand, though, if this book is from God, we've got to believe it. We need to heed it, or we need to face the consequences for rejecting it. So how can you enrich your study of God's Word, the Bible? Let me just give you some simple questions to ask. Like, ask, what is this passage teaching? What is this passage teaching about God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and people and sin and sanctification and leadership and life and the adversary? What, what is it teaching? What am I learning here? Ask this question. This is a really good question. Why is it here? Why did God have this event recorded? Or why is this placed here? And then this third question, Lord, how should I respond by faith? What, what do you want me to do, Lord? And so when you read, ask the Spirit of God to draw out application in your life as you trust in Jesus. So, like, what does application look like? Like, promises to claim, or attitudes and actions to develop, or commands to obey, or examples to follow, or sins to forsake, or descriptions about God and His ways. But apply it where God shapes your understanding, your beliefs, your convictions, and even guides your behavior. So let me just ask, what are you putting your faith into? Do you really feel comfortable just making it up as you go in light of this book? You know what, Fellowship, our, our vision is real simple. We want people to truly know Christ, to be in Christ. And as they are, it's kind of like a little sapling, like a little oak tree sapling. You start sinking deep roots and knowing God and His Word. And you're drawing the nutrients of this rich relationship of being in Christ. And you're being in the Word. And you're growing and developing. And it's like your character's being shaped. And you're becoming Christ-like. And you're growing in the grace and the love of God. And showing up in your relationships and your family. And how you treat your kids and your grandkids and your spouse. And it's also showing up in how you go about your day and your work and your week. And you're bearing fruit that literally can remain and be reproduced in the life of others. Spiritual fruit. Friends, that's what God intends with His Word. I want you to know something. I can't change your life, but God certainly can. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to accomplish the work of God in His people's lives. See, God brings transformation through His revelation. I want you to consider the mission statement of a well-known university. Listen to this. Original mission statement. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Wow. <laughs> it was founded in 1636. This university employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized character formation in its students above all else. Um, its school motto, original school motto, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, Ecclesiae, which means truth for Christ and the church. Um, the early colonists, they renamed this new college, which they, we were calling it the new college. They renamed, they renamed it after a pastor, a pastor who had given most of his money and all of his library to this new college. So they named it after him. Half of the graduates in the early years were pastors. Ten of its first 12 presidents were pastors or ministers. Uh, you've probably heard of the school. It's Harvard University. Well, about, only about 80 years after Harvard's founding, there was a group of New England pastors that sensed that Harvard had drifted too far for their liking. 
I mean, they were pretty concerned about the secularization at Harvard, and so they approached a wealthy philanthropist with their concerns and a man who shared their concerns, and his name was Elihu Yale. He financed their efforts in 1718, and they named the college Yale University. Its motto was not just Veritas, but Lux et Veritas, which means light and truth. And I want you to know that today, Harvard's and Yale's legacy of academic excellence, guess what? It is still intact. These are amazing schools. A lot of smart people to go there and teach there. But the original mission in that school, in both of those schools, it, it does not resemble what the founders intended. At the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, and it was a big deal, even the Prince of Wales came to it, Stephen Muller, former president of Johns Hopkins University, stated this bluntly. The bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, confessed this. He was the 27th president from 2001 to 2006. Things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. I mean, Harvard and Yale's founders were explicitly clear of their goals. Academic excellence, Christian formation. Today, they're hitting only on one. What happened? We could call it mission drift. I mean, how did these schools become the great bastions of biblical teaching and truth that they are today? Well, simply stated, you step foot on that slippery slope. You deny the authority of the word, the deity of Jesus Christ. You confuse the gospel. It's no longer trusting in Christ and Christ alone, living by faith. No, you just water that down. Pretty soon you ax it out and you kind of end up with what you've got. Like Greer and Horst write, it's like mission drift. And it unfolds slowly, like a current. It carries organizations away from their core purpose and identity. And I'll tell you, there are numerous colleges and universities that had rather amazing beginnings, that had high hopes of just like Harvard and Yale. And now, I mean, you'd be shocked. Like, they don't even want to say the word Christian in their name. Like, no, 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 we just can't do that. They want nothing to do with it. And their schools reflect that. I'll also tell you, there are numerous churches and even denominations where once, once they burned brightly for Christ and they held the word as the authority. And now, they, they may function, but what they were intended to do, it no longer takes place. I want you to know at Fellowship Bible Church, we hold the Bible for what it really is, the Word of God. It's what we believe. It shapes all of our doctrine, our practices, how we run it, what's pursued here, how we do what we do. It's based on this book, not casually, but intentionally. And you know why? Because God brings transformation through his revelation, just like he did with the Thessalonians. I want to read to you a poem that uh, was given to me many years ago. I've always kept it. I think it summarizes well this verse. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end.
It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life and will be opened at the judgment and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its contents. It is the book of books, God's book, the revelation of God to man. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just an amazing verse of Scripture that captures the essence of what it means to know you through your word and what this book really is. And so, God, we would just ask that you might continue to cultivate in us individually and as a church a heart to walk in your truth and to know your ways, and that through the, the blessings and the gift of grace of Jesus, we might be everything you've intended the church to be. And for someone who has come here today who has never trusted in you, but just by even hearing of these prophecies and you working in their hearts, if they've never trusted in you, would they do that right now and say, God, I turn from self and sin, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus. God, be the Lord of my life. Be the Savior for my sin. And Lord, may you have your way in us, from not only from our rich history that we share, but in the days ahead. We ask in Jesus' name.